welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Happy fourth Sunday of Advent. It's the day that we uh, focus on the Annunciation and we hear the words of Mary in the Magnificat. Um, And also, uh, for the kids in the room, I have something to talk about. So, uh, you'll see here I have a lovely apple. And in this bag, the other day, I, I pulled out a bunch of apple seeds from an apple. And so you can see I have, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten apple seeds. And they're all about this tiny. I don't know if you can see that, right? So that's smaller than a pinky nail for an adult man, uh, anyways. And so we have ten seeds from one apple. Now... If that's how many seeds is in one apple, how many apples do you think I could grow from this one seed? What do you think? Like a hundred more? What else do you guys think? Any guesses, Eli Shepherd? What do you think, Nisha? A million? A million? That's a good guess, yeah. What do you think, Shepherd? A lot. That's actually probably one of the most accurate answers. It's a lot. We really, it's a trick question. We could grow at least a hundred. We could grow at least a million. We could grow a lot of apples. We don't, we don't really know how many apples could come from one seed. Um, you know, think about it. After, after drying out the apple seeds and prepping some soil, you could start to grow a little seedling, a little tree. And then you could take that seedling and you could put it in a bigger pot. And then once that tree gets a little bit stronger and can take some of the weather, you can take that tree uh, and then you can put it in the ground and you can watch it grow. And so there's this saying that I heard from somewhere else where someone said, you know, you can count the number of uh, seeds in one apple, but you can't count the number of apples that can come from a seed. And I think that's, that's helpful. I know a lot of you went to the, remember when we went in October to the farm in Maryland? Um, And we saw a lot of apple trees. And each one of those apple trees had hundreds of apples. And so you can imagine if I have 10 trees here, that's already like a thousand apples. But once I take those apples and I dry those seeds, I get more trees. And so that's how orchards get made. Lots and lots of seeds. So putting a seed inside of a pretty box won't make that seed grow any better. If you take a whole bunch of apples and you just let them rot, and then you put them into a pit, it's not necessarily going to make more trees. What is going to make a better tree is being patient with the one little seed and giving a lot of attentiveness to that unassuming little seed. 
It's the kingdom of God. And when we look at this passage, the kingdom of God grows in slowness and it grows in patience and in humility. And that often means that the things that are somewhat trivial, potentially, uh, or mundane, actually are imbued with kingdom significance. And that's where we find the presence of Christ in other people or in situations. So the way of God's kingdom is humble, it's unassuming, and growth, what often happens, growth often is, um, takes longer than we would like to see, uh, but that's exactly what the prophets are preparing us for in a passage like this. We've been in the minor prophets during the last three weeks of Advent, and when we look back at those, they're preparing us with hope for the coming of the Messiah. And, and now we're preparing for the second coming of the Messiah at the end of the age. And we've been looking at the ways that God tears down, the way that God clears ground, the way that God rebuilds his people. And then last week we heard from Christy and from Becca about the ways that we find hope in God uh, being in their midst. And so if you didn't get a chance to hear those, they're on the website on the sermons page. So go listen to those. They're really good. It's about God being in their midst, rejoicing over them with singing, quieting them with his love. And it was, uh, it was really, really helpful. So today we're beginning week four of Advent. It's the final week of Advent. Uh, our church's first Advent together. And we are in one of the earliest prophets in, in chronological time. This prophet, Micah, was, was a contemporary with the prophet Isaiah, who, uh, you know, as you're familiar with the book of Isaiah. So he was writing about the 700s or the, the early 600s BCE. And when you read those two books side by side, Isaiah and Micah, you find a ton of parallels. That they're like word for word parallels between the two books. Our passage today is looking ahead at a day when God is going to rebuild and restore the federation of the tribes of Israel. Those tribes have been split up. They've been broken up by civil war. Um, they've been almost destroyed, uh, some of them. And in 721, so think about 700 years before Jesus, the Assyrians came in and they made a pass through the north and they swept away Judah's older brother, Israel, in the north. And, and that that kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, was actually like a buffer from any of the enemies who wanted to come and attack Judah from up north. And so now they're scared. And this passage is looking forward to a day when Judah is going to suffer utter devastation, but then they're going to come to glorious return. And so it looks forward to something much more than just the recombining of this federation of the tribes of Israel. Um, it looks forward to a day that people are going to be reconciled to God or people are going to be reconciled to one another. And it looks forward to a peace that only comes through the humble example of Jesus, who's God's Messiah. And what we learn from Micah chapter five is that God's peace, it comes in lowliness. It doesn't come in bravado. It's probably slower than we expected. And it's ultimately better than we would have anticipated. Right, so we learn that God's peace comes in lowliness. It's slower than we expect. And it's ultimately better than we, what we would have anticipated. There's going to be a final breaking in where Jesus comes again. And he brings final peace and lasting justice. But before then, even now, there are ways that God's kingdom breaks in. And there are two things that the prophet wants the people to understand about the ways that God is breaking in. How is his kingdom coming? First, it seems like 
things that are considered setbacks for you and I are not considered setbacks for God. It's the first thing to understand. And then second, God's peace and his rest and his hope often begin with the things that are seemingly unimportant. So first, I want to go back to the scene in Micah 5. It sounds like a, a lot like the scene that you find in Isaiah 36, verses, uh, chapter 36 through 39, where the Assyrians are now at the door of Judah, the southern kingdom. They're at the door of Jerusalem. They're at the door of the fortified cities. Most of the people in Judah would have remembered about 20 years ago uh, when their northern brethren had been captured and carted off. We don't know if that's actually the precise event here, but it fits the time period and the ministry of Micah. And the question is what we do when we're backed into a corner. What is King Hezekiah going to do or whoever's ruling at this time? There's a big contrast in in verses one and two of Micah. We didn't read the first portion, but it talks about gathering the armies. Uh, In verse one, the prophet tells them to gather the troops. Uh, In other words, to look to their military. And it's a little bit ironic. Uh, But then he says that their judge, who is presumably the king of Judah, is going to be struck on the cheek. So he says, you can you can turn to the armies and know that when you do, your servant will be struck on the cheek, your judge. There's going to come a day where things were going to get worse before they were going to get better. Hope wouldn't be found in the greatness of Jerusalem's military. Power was going to be found instead in verse two in the lowly Bethlehem Ephrathah. The place where David was from, if you read back in 1 Samuel. And, and that's not where you go to search for a king. If you want power and influence, you have to have somebody who looks regal. You've got to have somebody who's from the right family, from the right area, the right socioeconomic class, from the right city. That's who you need to look like a king. But that's not what Bethlehem was. And so Assyria's siege felt like a huge setback for Judah. Everything probably stood still at that point. People were just paralyzed with fear. The cities stopped living. And life just stopped as people waited with bated breath to see what was going to happen, which for them really was the, the threat of being forced out of their homeland into a foreign country. And yet that setback for Judah was not a setback for God. It was an opportunity to return to God. And I, and I don't know who in this room this morning feels like, man, you know what, I just, I hit a setback this week. Uh, but if that's not you, uh, it might happen to you. You might hit a setback. Um, and, you know, maybe it's like you've, you've been getting full night's sleep and then all of a sudden there's a sleep regression. Or you were feeling well and then sickness came. Your marriage was fine and then you had a big argument. Or you began new rhythms of prayer and the busyness of life just started crowding them out. And yet a steady stream of income and maybe that got lost. But when we're faced with setbacks, we can be encouraged that the things that are setbacks for us are not setbacks for God. They're actually opportunities. So turning to Bethlehem often means doing what we're not necessarily inclined to do, which our inclination is to figure out any way we can fix the situation. Instead of worrying about the things that are out of control, we stop. And we sit in the presence of God and we ask him where he's calling us to in this moment, in this season. Calling the people back to Bethlehem is a reminder and it's an encouragement that God wants them to return to his covenant. Remember what things were like with David. And he wants to establish his rule and his reign. And he wants to do that without their armies. And we're going to see glimpses of God's kingdom. Um, 
And it's going to be, when we see glimpses of God's kingdom, it'll be because of those setbacks, not despite them. It reminds me of these lyrics that you find by a, an art, a collective named Bifrost Arts. They sing a version of Psalm 126. And they say, although we are weeping, Lord, help us keep sowing the seeds of your kingdom for the day you will reap them. Your sheaves we will carry. Lord, please do not tarry. All those who sow weeping will go out with songs of joy. So let the things that set us back on our heels be the moments that invite the humble presence of Christ to become our hope. From ministering to a few people with chronic illness, I can tell you from my own experience that I have learned a lot about finding God's goodness uh, and his kingdom in our setbacks. And, and why is it, you know, I ask myself often, why is it then people can experience the kingdom of God in oncology clinics or in extended stays in the hospital, and yet I find myself frustrated or distracted at the smallest inconvenience Um, It distracts me from seeing the kingdom of God, and yet others can find God in the setbacks. It's that God's kingdom is found in the setback and not despite it. And those who are in those situations who have had their faith tested uh, with a major setback often have better eyes to see God's kingdom uh, in those situations. God's peace comes in lowliness. And it's often slower than we expect it. And it's ultimately better than what we could have anticipated. The second way that God's peace breaks in is through the things that are seemingly unimportant. The hope for Judah began in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, uh, where God would bring a new servant from the line of David. And it says that this new David is going to come after a time of exile in verse 3. It says this, therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. It's a similar idea to Isaiah's young woman who is going to conceive and give birth. This small child is the hope for the return of the tribes of Israel. And more than that, this little child is going to be the hope for the nations. It says that this person is going to stand and shepherd the flock of God. And unlike, you know, we're used to thinking of a leader of, the, of our country as a president. Unlike a president which functions as the executive uh, branch of the government, the kings in the ancient Near East were often compared to shepherds. Governance was a little different. The responsibility of the welfare of the people really rests on their shoulders. So much so that if they didn't do a good job, they faced a populist uprising and the loss of their own life potentially. So it was in their best interest to do a good job to make sure people had what they needed. And in an agrarian society, you know, we talk about shepherding. And shepherding provided a great analogy for what kings were supposed to do, which is provide pasture for their sheep. They provided pasture for the sheep to graze and simultaneously kept predators away from the people. It's a good analogy for what kingship should be. And it also happens that David was a shepherd. It says that in the beginning of verse 5, this new David is going to be their peace. He's going to make Israel dwell secure again and find pasture. Some would have thought that that was going to be Zerubbabel, who we read about in the, in the, you can read about in the book of Haggai and Zechariah who is responsible for rebuilding the temple after the exiles come back. That's not untrue. It does, in some senses, apply to Zerubbabel. But it's more than that. The Gospel of Matthew applies this to Jesus himself. 
It's quoted by the, the pagan magi who are talking to King Herod about where the, the king of the line of David was going to be born. And that hope was not Herod's kingship, which didn't go over well with Herod. But Herod was an Edomian, right? He's an Edomite. And so uh, it wasn't going to come through Herod. Jesus would be the good shepherd. And this prophecy looks forward to him. When he ascended and when he sat at God's right hand, he rules and he reigns there um, until he comes again. And then things will be restored and ultimately rebuilt all the things that were broken and ravaged by the fall. But in between now and when he comes again, you and I are privileged to see these little glimpses of the daybreak of God's reign through the kingdom of darkness and to and the ways that that brings peace and justice and hope. It isn't in the armies of the mighty, right? Which is where we're tempted to look. It's in the smallness of Bethlehem. It's in that place of humility that God restores our souls, where he brings healing to ourselves and where he brings healing to other people in Christ. Seeing God's kingdom, the the fruit of God's kingdom happens when we cultivate smallness, when we look at the seeds, not when we look at how many apples we can get. So, for example, uh, perhaps on some afternoons, you begin mentoring or tutoring young people or volunteer at your children's school. Maybe there's a homeless person you go by frequently and you take the opportunity to sit and have lunch with them, give them the dignity of hearing their story. Perhaps you begin to see a counselor and invest in yourself and your marriage to to have that conversation with somebody that you've been dreading having. Perhaps you intentionally set aside work to make sure that your family gets your best, not your leftovers. Perhaps you prioritize a night to have your neighbors over to get to know them. All of these are little things, right? They're little changes. But each of those small things is imbued with kingdom significance. And for the Christian who thoughtfully brings these moments with them into God's presence, these are the seeds of the kingdom that grow into the, the innumerable fruits that we may never know about on this side of eternity. So again, returning to this question, how many apples are in one seed? And I have no idea, no idea how many apples are in one seed, obviously. But you know, the one thing that, that we know is that small seeds are where the kingdom of God grows. Jesus left us an example of humility, not one of uh, broader nationalism or militarism or politics or celebrity influence. So we don't search for him in those places or by those means. We search for him in the setbacks. We search for him in the seemingly mundane things because that is where Jesus is found. And where Jesus is found, that's where we find the hope for restoration and reconciliation with God and with one another. The hope for the nations didn't come from the armies of Jerusalem. It came from a baby who was born in Bethlehem. Let me pray for us. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest, we shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be our strength. By the might of your spirit, lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.